0: All right, well, if you would, take your Bibles and open up to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5 with me as we stand and read the Word of God together one more time. Uh, we're going to be reading today chapter 5 verses uh, verses 22 all the way down to verse 33. Let's read this together and then I will jump into uh, talking about this, this text with us. <clears throat> this is what the Word of God says. It says, Wives, subject yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, Each individual among you is also to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Let's pray one more time together. Well, Father, uh, looking at this awesome, awesome passage of Scripture that deals with such a monumental subject, marriage, the mystery of marriage, the analogy of marriage Marriage and the gospel Lord I know that for many Lord the subject of marriage conjures up all sorts of different emotion and solicits lots of different responses for some it is good news that I'm preaching on marriage today for some it is news that Lord they weren't expecting Lord, for some, they don't think that this is applicable because they're not married. Uh, For others, Lord, their marriage speaks of pain and they don't want this reminder. And so, Lord, help me as I speak your word now and declare your scripture. Please, Lord, as I can do all I can do, speak all I can speak, qualify all that I can qualify. But, Lord, would you come now by your spirit, and use your text, Lord, to speak to the heart of your people wherever they are. And whatever sphere, whatever, whatever phase of their life they're in, would you use your prophetic word in, your, in their life? Lord, we thank you. We look to you, God. We look to you to strengthen the marriage of our church. We look to you, Lord, to strengthen the foundation. And this is one foundational pillar that needs to be strong. Father, we're living in an age where the pillars of the very foundations of society are being shaken to their very core. Marriage is right at the very heart and soul of it all. And now more than ever, Lord, I I, I could honestly say that. Now more than ever, we need to be reminded and we need to reflect on the true biblical portrait of of marriage. And so, Lord, come, speak now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, today's message is entitled, The Mystery of Marriage. And um, this is a two-part message, really. Uh, Pastor Chris and I, after talking and reflecting on this, we we thought that we would devote some time right before the Emmaus Conference um, to talk about Uh, practical theology. And I thought, what more practical than the subject of marriage, the subject of the family, the subject of child rearing. And so next week, Pastor Chris is going to come and talk to us about the family. And so today, my task is to talk to us about marriage and marriage issues. And um, I tell you what, I know that the, 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 the very words of my prayer, I meant the bottom of my heart. I know that there are many in this church right now that are probably thinking, wow, this is not really even applicable to me. I'm not married, what does this have to do with me? I'm not in that place and time. I remember thinking like that before I got married. But really, this has everything to do with you because you're in the church. You're part of the church. And what marriages do and what, how marriages are and the health of the marriage in a church affects you directly as a member of the church and as part of the body of Christ. And secondly, you're part of this society. You're part of this world. You're part of this culture. And so you play an integral part in what's going on in the world all around us, and you need to be abreast of what's happening with the issue of marriage in in general and the assault on marriage in particular. And so I thought it would be a good reminder, refresher, it would be easy for me to stir us up today by way of reminder to talk about this great mystery of marriage. And um, when I talk about the mystery of marriage, I'm taking that right out of verse 32, this is a great mystery, or this mystery is great, he says. And I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. maybe the word mystery for some entails that marriage is kind of a mysterious thing. Can't wrap your hands around, can't wrap your mind around it. Uh, Even today, you're probably thinking, I can't wrap my mind around my marriage. And a lot of people are at a place where marriages marriages represent, uh, or their marriage represents a very perplexing thing. And uh, I hope that this this text, this classic text of scripture will serve to sort of reorient us, to give us a biblical vision of what marriage is. But also let me say this again, that i very much adamant today of strengthening the whole concept and the whole theology of marriage because marriage is being assaulted today. Um, obviously, you know that. You're in the culture. I don't even need to really educate you on what's going on in the culture, but you know that our culture is attacking marriage in an unprecedented fashion today. Folks, for the first time in world history, marriage is now being redefined into other things. You have presently, just to give you an example of this, presently, You have now more people in the United States of America, more people live in the states where same sex marriage is legal than those that don't. This is unprecedented in our time. This is unprecedented in the history of humanity. Don't think that this will not have a dire effect on the world, it will, it already is. It already is and because of the the diabolical liberal gay agenda not only is marriage being assaulted but any type of semblance of the family unit is now being assaulted not only do we have to be concerned brothers and sisters with keeping the foundations of marriage pure and trying to restore the biblical portrait of marriage but it's being torn apart to such a degree and in such a way where very, in a very short order, if things don't turn around, we will not even be able to recognize what a family is. I mean, you've heard maybe of the three women in Massachusetts who opted to get married with, all, with, 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 with each other, all three people. So now it's not just gay marriage anymore. That's not sufficient anymore. Now we have to have gay interpolygamous marriage going on. Now, and, and what's the next step from there? Incestuous marriage. There's a gentleman that, wanted, that went to court to legally marry his pornographic computer. I mean, we are straining at the edges of what society is even able to handle. And we might laugh and say, oh, that's stupid. But the moral and the postmodern seeds that have been sown for decades and decades and decades are now coming to fruition. They're now coming to fruition. And so... I have to get that out. And the church, coming away from culture now, but just the church, with the recent book that's been written by a gentleman by the name of Matthew Vines. I know that many of you you follow people's blogs, and if you stay abreast on what's going on. Matthew Vines is a young gay man who wrote a book entitled God and the Gay Christian, where he makes the case for gay evangelical Christianity. And what he does is obviously... He he twists and distorts Scripture as Peter says, Second Peter chapter three, verse sixteen, to his own destruction. But what that does is it moves the border it moves the envelope it pushes the envelope it, it moves the issue that much further into mainstream acceptance and and believe you me all it takes is for one book like this by one so-called evangelical to begin to influence people literally by the thousands we know we see the progression we see how this goes so that in my estimation the next thing that's gonna happen is major capitulation on behalf of major evangelical churches, or at least they call themselves evangelical, probably beginning with the seeker sensitive church, many emergent type models, many Pentecostal churches that are open to all sorts of weird and wacky liberal feminist egalitarian hermeneutics to then begin to capitulate to the gay hermeneutic. And in doing so, we will see apostasy on a level that we have never seen before. I mean, just recently, Jars of Clay, Amy Grant, Jennifer Knapp, among many others, coming out either in support of gay marriage or as gay. These are people whose music you probably have in your iPod. I do. I was so disappointed in Jars of Clay. And you know me uh, now for... Um, quite some time, and you know that I am dedicated to the expositional, verse-by-verse exegesis of the Word of God, and that I don't typically get up here and jump up and down on a pet peeve, but I'm angry today at what's going on in the church as well as in the culture, and so I think it's important for us to Return or to bring back a strong positive presentation of what marriage is and so my meaning here, my aim here today is twofold: not only is it to strengthen our marriages practically in this church, um, but also to give us a newfound strength and foundation for the theology of marriage itself and I tell you what, for our church, let me return to that for a moment. For our church, there's nothing more important than having strong marriages in the church. Typically, for a small church like ours, this is a small church. We're just getting started. We've only been in existence for a couple of years. And when people come into this church, I am very concerned to say, what will they see? What will they find? when they go into the homes of our people. What type of home are they coming into? What type of atmosphere? What sort of order or disorder or function or dysfunction will they find? What sorts of spiritual disciplines or spiritual laziness are they gonna find in our homes, in our marriages, in our families? It has everything to do with the health of our church. And so I call us to a high standard today And we turn to Ephesians. It is because of a passage like Ephesians 5 that gay marriage will forever remain an abomination. It is not just because it makes sense. And so I am almost, I am almost at the point where I'm saying, I don't care about the logic of gay marriage or heterosexual heterosexual marriage. I care about the revelational foundation of marriage. I care about the fact that marriage is a revelatory issue. It is, we know that marriage is between one man and one woman and a covenant of marriage for one reason. And it's not because it's logical or because society runs better that way It's because it's more healthy for a child to grow up in that fashion. All of those things are true but because God in his word has revealed to us that marriage is biblical. Heterosexual marriage. That's the only reason. Logic. People can find ways around logic. Science. People come up with different scientific arguments, right? Societal, philosophical, psychological, medical arguments can all be bent they can all be adapted but not scripture scripture Jesus said cannot be broken you may break your soul but you can't break scripture and so our logic for marriage has to be grounded in the Word of God it's only because Jesus has a bride not a husband that gay marriage is an abomination in the eyes of God that that is to say that when we go back to the garden and we see what God was doing in the garden with Adam and Eve it's not just about the joke you know God didn't make Adam and Steve that's not the apologetic the apologetic is Adam and Eve speak and reflect something way beyond themselves namely the greatest story ever told that God in the plan of redemption had a chosen people for his son a bride I mean think about it Jesus doesn't marry everybody he has one bride he doesn't have a husband he has a bride so I don't know how God and the gay Christian, Matthew Vines and those in his Elk, which queer theology has taught these things for many, many years now, twisted and did exegetical gymnastics with the word of God. How do you get around the, the idea that Jesus has a bride? doesn't have a husband. God is not tolerant of that in his word. And so I'm very zealous. To protect this now you know something about the the uh, the the letter of Ephesians this uh, moral imperative in marriage this mystery of marriage comes in the context of the household codes of of the book of Ephesians comes right after the indicatives of the letter chapters 1 through 3 namely that, that 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 Paul labors the point to show us how and why we are in Christ First, he labors and shows you This is how union with Christ works. It begins at eternity, it happens through election, predestination, adoption, justification, redemption, the, the, the indwelling and the sealing of the Spirit of God. And then it is worked out in the lives of Jews and Gentiles, coming together in full inclusion with one another. And then it is lived out and prescribed not only life, not only life in Christ but a life that's lived out in Christ. So, we come to the issue of this passage, and I wanna point out several things. I wanna point out to you the duties of a wife in the mystery of marriage, and I wanna point out to you the duties of a husband in the mystery of marriage, and then I want us all to feel the imperative of the mystery of marriage in the gospel. So first, let me begin. By addressing what Paul addresses first and that is the duties of a wife in the mystery of marriage Uh, number one Paul says wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord now very important to see here is the imperative is not in verse 22 you have to jump back up to verse 21 that is where the word be subject the literal Greek word is found. There it is, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Subsisting under that participle and connected to it is now this sort of this imperative force in the phrase, uh, to your own husbands. And so wives are attached to that imperative in verse 21, to be subject. So he moves away from the language of one another, and he moves to the sphere of marriage exclusively. Wife, the wife's key to a successful marriage, according to Paul, is submission. This is what I love about the Word of God. You know, there's lots of manuals written on marriage, how to have a better marriage. Every popular pastor has to write a marriage book. And there's probably 5,000 books written on how to have a successful marriage. And um, you know what I would do for you? Instead of putting maybe a book in your hand about marriage, I'd put a commentary in your hand. I'd say, here's a commentary on Ephesians. Go study and exegete and exposit Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 20, 33, and then come back to me and see if you still got questions about marriage. (laughs) Go do your own exegesis, your own Bible study, right? Get through this text and then tell me what are your questions after you get through this text. Because the beauty of it is that Paul makes it so simple, doesn't he? And I know that we can be disillusioned a bit to say, oh, if it was only really that simple. But it really is. That's the good news. The good news for the Christian marriage is that we don't need medicine We don't need psychology. We don't need therapy. We need scripture. We need the spirit of God. We need the truth of the word of God. That's what we need in order to have a successful marriage. Now, the first thing you should note there is the word submission. It goes without saying that in our culture, the word submission is a cuss word. It's a cuss word what do you mean you submit to your husband? Aren't you your own person? (laughs) What do you mean your husband is is your head, your leader? Well, folks, aside from the world, the world has nothing to do with instructing your soul on the issue of marriage, especially if they deviate from Scripture. But Besides the point, even though submission is but a byword in our culture, it is a beautiful posture that is rooted in Christ-likeness. What we are going to say about submission, whatever negative things we might say about the word submission, we had better be ready to attach those descriptions to Jesus Christ. So if you say, oh, why why does the wife have to submit to, to her husband? You had better be ready to speak the heresy that would flow from such a statement and say, oh, why would Jesus submit to his father? You see how quickly you become heretical when you have a false view of marriage? Look at the Gospel of John with me. Turn to John chapter 4. I want you to turn quickly, get your hands going today, because I want you to, to see the beauty of Christ like submission in the Word of God. That it is part of Christ's essential, mediatory, and even his primeval glory, his pre existent glory, to be a submissive Savior, a submissive Son. John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus, above everything, is submitted to the will of God. John 5, verse 30, turn over now, 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I don't even, he he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. You want to talk about, What the problem, the opposite of submission would be personal ambition, selfish ambition, right? Biblical submission is emptied of all of that, just like Jesus was emptied of all of that. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See? He empties himself, maybe more explicitly. Turn with me to John 14. Maybe even a more robust passage. John 14, verse 31. John 14, verse 31, he says, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. And then, jumping down to chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 4 As Jesus reflects on the entire plan of redemption, the eternal plan of redemption, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus, above everything else, Jesus is a man under submission, perfectly resigned to the will of the Father. He says in John 8, he says that the Father always, he says, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. That is a man that is totally submitted. Even in heaven, there will be, apparently, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, even in heaven, there will be some level of economic submission in the Trinity. Now, let's back up there. What do I mean by that? Economic submission versus ontological submission. There is no ontological difference in the essence of Jesus, the essence of the Father. They are one. But even in heaven... Paul says, when all things are subject to him, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, then the Son himself will will also or also will be subjected, that's the word, to the one who subjected all things to him. So he will be subjected to the one, i.e., the Father, who subjected all things to him, i.e., the Son, so God the Father, putting all things under his feet so that he exalts his Son above all principality, power, giving him his name above all names so that the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. He will subject himself to him, to God the Father. So the opposite of submission is rebellion. This is why submission is to be like Christ. Jesus was never rebellious and just like there's an economic order in the Trinity there's also an economic order in the family obviously you guys know this axiomatically, self-evidently children do not lead the home (laughs) I know they would like to think that they lead the home but they don't lead your home they don't make your financial decisions right although in some homes it almost seems that way right some kids I guess you can make a case they're so spoiled they practically control the finances But it should not be. No, in the home, there is also this order, there's also this arrangement, this economy where. As Paul goes on to say, this analogy, wise, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's the the analogy, as to the Lord. Now, obviously, this metaphorical comparison is just that. It doesn't mean your husband is the Lord. It doesn't mean your husband is infallible. It doesn't mean your husband is perfect. It doesn't mean your husband is sinless, like the Lord. But the principle is there And this is the principle that I deduced, the doctrine that I deduced from this. With the same determination with which we are determined to obey Christ, wives, you should be determined to obey your own husbands for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. This submission deals with everything in life. A godly woman should want to obey her husband in every sphere of life financially, Decisions that need to be made about the home. Biblical modesty. A woman should not have the right to say, I will dress however I want to dress. Leave that to me. If the husband has something meaningful to say about that, a a godly wife is going to want to listen. Matter of fact, I would say a godly wife should praise her husband for wanting to even be involved in her, her modesty. That's just one example but in everything family decisions decisions in the home that need to be made because it is the man who will ultimately give an account for those decisions. It is the man who will have to give an account for the overall stewardship of the home, not the woman. It will not be on judgment day that God will go up to the wives of the families in the church and say, why did you lead your home that way? (laughs) No, no, no. The, The husband gives the account for the home. And it we'll get there. I'm tempted to rail on the guys right now, but I'll get there. But let's finish this up. Listen to the logic of this, verse 23. The Paul's logic of this. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So there appears to be a slight brevity. If you look at this passage of scripture, you got verses 22 to verse 24. That's it. And then we're going to go from verse 25 all the way down to verse, well, to verse 31, in dealing with the husband. It's like, wow, that's pretty brief. Because in reality, ladies, it's quite simple. And your husband will attest to this. You can be anything, you can be. You can be beautiful. You can be drop-dead gorgeous in the eyes of your, of your husband. You can be a hardworking mom. You can be a hard-working woman. You can be driven. You can be motivated. You can be ambitious. You can be loving. You can be affectionate. But if you're not submissive, you will deflate your husband faster than anything else. That's just the way that God set it up. He set it up this way. Men... Above everything, love when they're wives in a godly way. Now hear my tone, because you know, this is where pastors get, you know, lynched, his messages like this. <laughs> hear my tone, ladies. Your husband has no right to be a tyrant in the home. A bully. He should not be a bully. Now, trust me, when I was going over this text, I was just repenting in my own heart. Wow, gee, how am I supposed to preach this, you know? Seeing and confronted with my own sins and my own failures. But that's the way it is nevertheless. We are, the husband is not to be a tyrant. You are not a doormat. And the minute that you feel like you are becoming a doormat in the home, you need to go to your elders and say, I don't think we're, I don't think we're functioning right. I don't, th- I'm being submissive, but I'm being trampled on. That's not what God, you know, I read, I read this at, uh, re- at your, your what we- your, uh, your wedding ceremony, Ryan and, and Claudia. I read this. I read this at people's uh, weddings, the quote from Matthew Henry, the woman was taken from Adam's side. He wasn't taken from his feet, symbolizing that he is, that she is beneath him. She's also not taken from his head, symbolizing that she leads him. No, she is taken from his his rib, near to his heart to be loved by him, right? Under his arm to be protected by him, right? So there's no threat to your ontological equality, just like there's no threat to the ontological equality in the Trinity. We're not saying, Scripture is not saying that women are less in value in dignity and worth, that you somehow reflect the image of God a little less than man does? No, no. It doesn't say that at all. We equally reflect the image of God. As a matter of fact, it says that Genesis chapter one, verse 26 and 27, male and female. He created them in his image. He made them. He made them. But Submission is one of those things that I think Paul, after seeing years and years of family life in the church, he put his hand on the one thing that he knew he needed to get to the very heart and soul of the matter. He could have talked about everything, right? Wives, pray more for your husband. Wives, be a better homemaker. Wives, raise your children better. He doesn't do all of that. All of those peripherals are dealt with, with this word right here, submission. Because if you're truly biblically submitting to your husband, you will be those things. And it is the wise woman, according to Proverbs chapter four, ladies, you know this, or you should, the wise woman, she builds her house. See that there's edification strength, but the foolish woman, she tears it down with her own hands. She tears it down with her own hands. And if you disobey in this area of submission, you could very easily tear down your own home. Scripture gives us a stellar example. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, there's so many things that I like about this. I could spend the whole time just looking at this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, the example of Sarah. And one of the observations I want to make is in verse 5. For in this way, talking about how to submit to your husband, how to be a godly, modest woman, in this way, in former times, the godly women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Now stop there. Ladies, I want you to reflect of former times. Namely, have heroes in the faith have examples that you could go to pick up the book by Sarah Edwards on marriage to a difficult man and what it was like to mar- to be married to Jonathan Edwards who used to study 14 hours or whatever a day and and who who and Sarah Edwards was a she's just a she's just an insane person I mean her her, her holiness her piety is just incredible they used to have a home right near uh, uh, um, uh, the, the Indians, where they were missionaries there in, in um, oh, I forgot where it is now. Stockard, I think it is. And, and there she would open up her home to soldiers and to, and to people that would, that would need housing. It was like a little hotel. It was like a little, at times it was like a little hospital. She would take people in and be hospitable and serve them and heal their wounds on top of taking care of 11 children. So I'm not saying, hey, unless you're Sarah Edwards tomorrow, you're all failures. (laughs) I'm not saying that. We're all failures compared to her in many ways. I'm just saying have heroes. Have those women that you read, that you study, that you look back to. Read some of the Puritan women of old, what you can learn from Susanna Spurgeon. Pick up a book by Susanna Spurgeon, read her piety, study her prayer life, read her about her example, and read biographies on these ladies and what they were like. I tell you, you would be so encouraged, and I promise you that you're gonna grow tremendously if you apply yourself to that, even if you're not married. You don't have to be married to grow from the example, the examples of godly women in times gone by. Doesn't matter if you're single, if you're married, especially, but even if you're single, you can benefit so much from reading the biographies of former times. Verse 6 Sarah obeyed Abram, Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, quickly, what does that mean, frightened by any fear? In the context is the fact that women were afraid of being persecuted by their husbands. If they had unbelieving husbands, they could fear persecution from them, maybe even death, maybe even being beat. And he's saying, look, you don't have to be afraid of anything if you do what is right. That's not to say that you should ever stay in an abusive situation. You should not. My policy maybe you won't like this, but my policy is this. If your husband ever hits you, your next move is not to call the pastor. Your next move is to call 911. Maybe he needs to learn a little lesson what it means to spend a night in jail, okay? I mean, look, guys, there is zero, zero excuse for lifting your hand towards your wife, for hitting a woman. Zero. And if she doesn't call the cops on you, it is pure grace on your soul, but that's what you deserve. No, so ladies, hear clearly from my lips today. I never would ever endorse that you stay in an abusive situation. Paul has a lot to say about that, I think, in First Corinthians chapter seven. But here, Sarah's example of submission is just stellar. She called him Lord. Now, she didn't mean to call him God, by calling him Lord, she was speaking to him in the most reverent fashion uh, uh, the most reverent way imaginable. It would be something like sir. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> to you, it may be so foreign, submissively speaking, that you would ever address your husband as sir. But I could tell you something. When Jonathan Edwards walked into his family room, all of his 11 children stood up in attention that the father had walked into the room. We are totally, totally detached, I believe, from the Puritan times. And I don't mean this in a legalistic fashion. I just want to open our eyes a little bit to what maybe our culture has done to us. And I am not at all advocating patriarchy. I, I personally believe the family integrated movement is a, is a blight on the evangelical church. I don't support it at all. As a matter of fact, I think it's unbiblical. It's unbiblical. And I know I'll take a lot of heat for that, whatever. People want to call me, that's fine. I think that the family integrated movement has erred. They have gone so far as to make the family the centerpiece of the church. The family is not the centerpiece of the church. Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of the church. I've I've heard of churches where you take communion in families. So Santos would take communion by themselves. The the, the, you know, the Rosaleses, they take communion on their cell. The Matthews, they take their own communion together. And in my opinion, it obliterates the whole purpose for communion. Communion is saying that the person in front of you who is in Christ is more your mother, your brother, your sister, your family member than your own blood relative. That's the beauty of the gospel. And I think when we go into excesses, even in the guise of family, which is really what it becomes is an imbalance, a romanticism of the family that Scripture doesn't teach. Then we become imbalanced. Then we, dist- we can distort the gospel. And, um, and a lot of bad things can happen, which I don't have time to get into. We, you know, we have a disclaimer on our church. I don't know if you know that. But people go and visit our church. They can read on our website, we are not a family-integrated church. And we elders we put that there on purpose because when people want a family integrated church they want a certain brand of church and in my opinion I think they're looking for an unbiblical brand I just think we have to follow the model and the example of Scripture that's what we need so let me move on now to the duties of the husband very very simply here it says in verse 25 husband love your wives Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the moral imperative, the the primary moral imperative for the husband is love. Just like the primary moral imperative for the woman is submission. Or, as he's going to go on later, to say respect. Love and respect. There's even a marriage book written. Love and respect. Which there's a lot of truth to that. That That is the cycle that we have to be living in. Love, respect. Love, respect. You get out of that cycle, and all of a sudden, you find yourself living sideways, and it doesn't work. But once again, the analogy here is to Christ, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So submission implies leadership. How are you doing, guys, with your leadership in your home? How's it going with your Bible time, your study time, your prayer time? How is it going in your, your times with your wife? How are you doing with your family? Do they see you, not just the king of your home, not just the priest of, of your home that takes people, you know, that brings, brings the family to church, but are you the prophet of your home? Do you speak the oracles of God in your home through Bible study? Are you the prophet in your home? Can your wife and your kids go to you safely for biblical advice, biblical content, biblical encouragement, teaching, instructing? Do you gather the family around the table and teach them the Bible ever, ever, ever? Do you sit in the bed and read the Bible ever, pray ever? I can't tell you how many counseling sessions I've had where I run into couples that haven't prayed together in years. Their marriage is so messed up. They won't read the Bible because they end up arguing about it. (laughs) Now, There's a theological debate, right? But that's sad. And we should stray away from that as much as possible. Men, be as disciplined as you need to be to get yourself to that point where you you are seen as the prophet, priest, and king of your home. Little P, little K, little Little, little p little priest you're not the king okay but you are to rule you are to have dominion you are to be in charge you are to be you are to be the leader you, the, you are to be the head and you are accountable to that you're responsible for that's a major responsibility so how, what does this look like what does this type of leadership look like it looks like this selfless discipleship. Let's just read verse 25 again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Keep going. So that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word and he might present to himself the church and all of her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless so husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies he who loves his own wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh But he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his church. So, in this text, what we find is the instrument, the intent, and the illustration of this selfless discipleship and of the sanctification of our wives because that's priority number one. Priority number one for the husband is the sanctification of his wife. How is my wife doing in the Lord? It is not enough, guys, that you take your wife to church. It doesn't begin and end there. You have to be constantly monitoring the spiritual growth, the spiritual health of your wife constantly. And here's good news. He gives us first the instrument of this sanctification. And it doesn't just have to do with the husband, but also with the wife. The instrument of sanctification is the word of God. He sanctifies her. How? by cleansing her and washing her with the water of the word. Husbands, you need to be word-driven in the home. Always a choice word. Uh, My husband's in the word. This is what wives should say. My husband is in the word. You say, well, it's easy for you. That's your job. You got to study. You need to be doing sermons. You need to do all of that. But let me tell you something, a challenge. My wife will testify to this. It's not easy for me. Yes, I've got sermons to write. I'm writing things. I'm writing blogs. I'm studying commentaries. I'm studying my Greek. I'm exegeting the Bible. But that doesn't always translate into Bible study time with my wife. So I have to be intentional about this just like you do. But the point is this. It's twofold. Number one, this presupposes the husband is in the Word. Are you in the Word? And it presupposes the wife actually benefits from the word. When your husband says, let's do a Bible study, does that bore you? Does that trouble you? Is that more of a burden than a blessing? Oh, that means we have to get the kids together, and I don't know, we, we have time for that, to make dinner. Listen, fo- listen, wives and husbands, this is the primary means of sanctification for you and for me, is the centrality of the word of God in the home, in the home. That's what's going to sanctify you, is God's Word. So it means, husbands, you have to be in the Word. You've got to be able to teach the Word. At some fundamental level, every husband in our church should be able to interact theologically with the Bible at some fundamental level. It doesn't mean you need to be a Greek scholar. It doesn't mean you need to be up in all the doctrinal you know, controversies and you need to be reading all the technical commentaries. But it does mean that you, at some basic level, need to be able to explain the Bible. If that means you got to buy a couple books, Study Bibles, if that means you need to get a couple of uh, comprehensive commentaries. Whatever that means, brothers. It means you need to be able to handle the word of God. If you would, you're a little pastor in the home. I mean, how would you like it if I came up here week after week not knowing what I'm talking about, just kind of playing fast and loose with the Bible and not giving you any meaningful instruction or trustworthy exegesis? I don't know that we'd have the few people that we have. You guys probably clear out of here, as you should. Now, what is the intent? Boy, I tell you what. we got to speed up a little bit. The second thing is the goal of your wife's sanctification. It is eschatological. Look at verse 27. That he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, that she may be holy and blameless. This is all language of personal eschatology. Listen, folks, just as Jesus sanctifies the church through his word for the purpose of glorifying her, you too need to be concerned with your wife's eternity. You need to be concerned with your wife's eternal state, eternal condition, eternal destiny. You need to be concerned about your wife drifting from the faith You need to be concerned that there's no evil heart of unbelief in your wife causing her to depart from the living God. You need to be the surgeon of her soul, knowing that she is headed to the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10, where she will give an account for everything that she has done in the body, whether good or evil. You need to be concerned with her eternity. You need to strive for her sanctification. What's the next thing? There's also... The illustration. The illustration is this. The illustration is a selfless, a personal, selfless discipleship, as I've mentioned, that is concerned with personal well-being. It says in verse 28, husbands ought to also love their own wives as their bodies. Concerned, in other words, for her, the way that you're concerned for your own body, which I think body there means more than just your physical health. But I think overall the principle there is interests, whatever your self interests are, you need to be sure Philippians chapter two, verses two to four. You need to be sure that you're looking out for her interests as well, not just your own. It's so easy for us, right guys, to get caught up in our little hobbies, to get caught up in what we're doing, to get caught up in our own little world that we have our own goals, our own ambitions, our own interests. And we forget where's my wife in that picture? no we have to be we have to be intent to, to realize that she is entitled to a happy life just like you are first Peter chapter 3 verse 7 husbands in the same way live with your wife in an understanding fashion in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman see that the, the see that The authors of the Bible, fearless about biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. They don't don't qualify that. (laughs) You get on Fox News and say that. What do you mean because she's a woman? (laughs) Peter knows what he means. The glory of God and the image of God shines in her in a way that doesn't shine in you, man. Okay? You can't give birth, can you? (laughs) She's a woman. You're not. Get over it. Okay. He says, since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. You see that? Ladies, your life is to be grace filled. Does it seem like it's just your husband having all the fun? Does it seem like he's just interested about him having fun in this life, having a good life? Does he care about what you're interested in and what you want to further, about how you want to, the goals that you want to accomplish? You're entitled to those things just as he is. And a good, balanced husband is going to be cognizant of that. Now, lastly, lastly, the mystery or the the gospel-centered imperative of marriage. We've arrived at the final A passage here in verse 31 he says for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh this mystery is great so that looks back to what he just said and forward to what he's about to say if I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church nevertheless each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. So he repeats that, impa- that this selfless discipleship. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So he repeats the notion of submission. Again, selfless love and submissive respect. That's what we're after. That is the only thing that will spell success in your home. And to the degree that you conform to God's recipe for success, to that degree, you will succeed. And to the degree that you deviate from that success, to that degree, you will fail. And I'm concerned about this so much in our own church because I want, basically, if I could just sum it up, I want women to be women and men to be men. I want in the church for for us to have a biblical view of manhood and womanhood. I want women to thrive in what it means to be a godly woman. Guess what, ladies? Men can't be godly women on your behalf. you got to do that. You're playing a role we can't fill. And i tell you what, as a pastor, I know that the health of the church is largely predicated on the health of our ladies. You get unhealthy ladies in the church? Forget about it. Sometimes it's worse than guys. Okay, that's my only joke, okay, in the sermon but it's tough. It's equally tough. Men don't want to be men. Men are afraid of their wives. They walk on eggshells. They can't make financial decisions. The, the, the wives, they, they, they throw these irrational, irrational fears and that governs the life of their husbands. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's 50 50 all the way folks we each have our own personal responsibility to bear. We each have that. And I think the gospel imperative is exactly what we need. What do you do when you when your marriage gets out of hand, when your marriage gets out of whack, when your marriage is at the point where you're just you don't want to be married anymore. Let's just be frank. When you're just at a point, I don't want to be married to this person anymore. It's so bad right now. If you haven't been there, then you're blessed. But if you've been there, then you know what I mean. You know that marriage can get so problematic, so perplexing, so dysfunctional, so downright hard that you don't know how to find your way back to success, how to get it back into its proper orbit. And you know what you need? The gospel. That's what you need. You need the gospel. Only the gospel is going to teach you about sacrifice. Only the gospel is going to teach you about forgiveness and love and righteousness and peace and unity and grace. Only the gospel is going to be able to repair your marriage. And marriages that are grounded in the gospel are going to emanate gospel virtues. So... These are some of the keys to the success of a covenant of marriage, a marriage that will honor God and glorify God. I know that there's a lot of specifics that I can sit up here that you want me to talk about, that you want me to answer. And all I can tell you is go to the gospel, go to the word, go to this passage and, 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 and pound, as it were, on the text of scripture until you get your answer because God's word is sufficient to give it to you. Father, we pray that you would destroy the works of the devil, the works of the devil that are at work right now to get men to commit adultery, to get women to become hardened and indifferent to their husband's authority, We know that the culture is fueled by demonic powers, fueled by an antagonism towards your holy designs. And Lord, we know that you've called us to be the church, to be separate, to be distinct, to be opposite, to go against the grain of the culture, not to go in the flow of the feminism of our age not to go in the flow of the emasculinity of our age where men are no longer men and women are no longer women we live in a dangerous and diabolical age father I know it wasn't the focus or the scope of my sermon today but would you protect the children of our church oh God by protecting our marriages and our homes would you protect the little ones would you protect the young people in our church from the the terrible terrible examples that are going to be set in front of them the terrible examples that are being set in front of of children Lord everywhere in public schools on television in the media in entertainment everywhere even on cartoons and toys and everywhere there's just a distortion of your good and holy design, would you help the the parents in our church? Would you help them to protect their children by being that godly example of what you've called them to be? For Christ's sake, Lord, we pray these things. Amen.